Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU Freeform Station of the Nation. Coming at you live from Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. Very happy to be here with you. Thank you very much for joining me. Presently, in the future, in the archives, podcast, FM band, wherever you are, thanks for being with me. I have a bit of an experimental show this evening that I hope you will enjoy, and uh, I will explain all. It has to do with, well, you'll see. (laughs) Stick with it. I think it's going to be a fun one, but I wanted to say something about uh, not walking around with smartphones. This is a brief digression, but it's, it's fresh in memory, and so I wanted to share this with you before we get to the main topic of this evening's show, which is that I had an interesting experience coming to the station this afternoon. Uh, I live in Manhattan, and the station, as I just said, is in Jersey City, and in order to... Uh, go from Manhattan to Jersey City, you have to take a special train. It's not the New York City subway because you're actually crossing state lines. So you use something uh, called a PATH train. And the PATH train leaves, the one I take, leaves from uh, the, the basically the World Trade Center area. There's this building called the Oculus that has uh, a, a big PATH train station as well as some some shops and uh, restaurants and stuff in the building. It's architecturally kind of interesting building. Not sure how sustainable it is, but visually int- interesting. Anyway, I go there every Monday afternoon, and here I was at the uh, Oculus going into the PATH train station, and I noticed that there were a lot of people uh, coming out of the out of the stairwells, coming coming up from the PATH train platforms. And I thought, man, rush hour is really busy today. <laughs> it's like three times as many people as I usually see coming up. And then as I, as I got closer to the stairways going down, I realized that something was different. The energy was off and people were coming up the stairs and they were milling about all looking down at their smartphones. I mean, everyone was climbing the stairs, looking at their smartphones and they were milling about that top platform area in in the uh, main area of the PATH train station looking down at their phones. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, maybe there's been a change. And sure enough, as I went down the stairs, I saw on the display that there had been some sort of uh, massive delay and there was no PATH train service and and no other instructions about where to go or alternate ways because really there is no easy way to get across the river. I guess you can take a ferry, uh, but I was beginning to wonder how I was going to get to the station. And then I thought, well, rather than pulling out my smartphone, let me just think here for a second because uh, I'm in a giant crowd of people, hundreds of people who are all looking down at their phones. I was one of the fairly few people uh, looking somewhere other than down at a screen. And I thought, you know what? They, they collectively, everyone in this crowd surrounding me, have a lot more information collectively than I do. Everyone's trying to figure out the same thing. Where do we go from here? So why don't I just stop and wait and see what people do? So rather than pulling out a phone, I waited. And no doubt, in a couple of minutes, Immediately, it was like the it was like uh, iron filings being dragged by a magnet. I mean, as one, all 200 people all turned and started going down the stairs without saying a word. And I don't know how everyone got the same notice at the same time, if they were all on a certain social network or a website or an app or a group chat. I don't know what it was, <laughs> but whatever platform or platforms they were all on they all got the same information at the same moment and all I had to do was simply follow them down the stairs because I knew that the trains were back on without anyone saying a word and without my having to pull uh, out my smartphone smartphone from the depths of my backpack 
and sure enough, I got down to the platform and there was an announcement. Oh, the, the train is now, uh, there are delays, but the train is now running. That came about a minute after the crowd started moving. So the crowd had the instantaneous knowledge that I was after. And the reason I share this uh, little vignette with you is just a thought experiment that maybe what we should be doing, those of us who uh, are willing to step away from the phone and are not totally addicted to our screens, maybe what we can do once in a while is not pull out our phones, but instead look to see what other people are doing who are already on their phones. In other words, let the crowd uh, get surveilled and do the the uh, the searching and the browsing and the hashtagging for us and when the when they have the answer the crowd as one will move toward the solution and so i was happy with a completely analog solution to be able to uh to get my transportation questions answered so thank you to everyone who was um, looking down at their phones and contributed to that crowd-based knowledge. They, we used to call this crowdsourcing before that became associated with uh, all of the toxic platforms. But maybe we can bring it back, crowdsourcing as actually looking at a physical crowd of people, of screen addicts, uh, and getting our information that way, rather than pulling out our own phone and joining that crowd. Uh, okay, so that's how I got to the station. Here's what I wanted to do for this evening's somewhat experimental program. Uh, the title of this show is Touring the Torment Nexus, and I'm going to explain what that means because there was an internet meme that uh, started as a Twitter post last November. So this is on November 8, 2021, <clears throat> and there's a guy named Alex Blackman who I think used to write for The Onion. There's all these comedy writers on Twitter who I no longer read because I no longer really use Twitter. Occasionally I look up something, but I don't use my own account really anymore. But I did come across this, this uh, very clever post by, by this guy, Alex Blackman, and I'm gonna read it to you and then I'm gonna discuss how this fits into tonight's topic and then what I'm, how I'm building the show around this idea. So again, this is a Twitter post from uh, November 8, 2021. Alex Blackman writes, Sci-fi author, colon, In my book, I invented the torment nexus as a cautionary tale. Tech company, colon, At long last, we have created the torment nexus from the classic sci-fi novel, Don't Create the Torment Nexus. <laughs> and that's the end of the post. And I don't know if my reading this really does this justice. If you want to see it on the playlist, I've taken a screenshot. Go to WFMU.org, click Playlist and Comments. Or if you go to Tectonic.fm in the future, T-E-C-H-Tonic.fm, just find the playlist link for August 15, 2022, and you'll see it there, a screenshot of, of this, this brief, clever post. What he's saying is... Uh, imagine a world where a sci-fi author writes a book called Don't Create the Torment Nexus. <laughs> and, and that's standing in for all the dystopian sci-fi fiction and movies and TV shows that we've talked about on this show. And you've probably read or watched plenty yourself. Uh, if, you're, if you're a fan of the show, you're probably uh, in our group of people who enjoy, in a macabre sort of way, of watching and reading about these dystopian scenarios. These, these authors are telling us, don't create the torment nexus, so to speak. And what the tech companies are always doing is, as someone put it a while ago, they're using those dystopias as an instruction manual. For some reason, they, they look at a, a novel called Don't Create the Torment Nexus, and they say, at long last, we have created the Torment Nexus. And everyone says, why did you do that? Didn't you read the first line of the book, don't create the Torment Nexus? And the tech bros, so, the tech bros in Silicon Valley will say, but, but, but bro, it's so scalable. Um, and yes, the Torment Nexus is scalable. Congratulations, bros. But you missed the whole point, which was you were not supposed to create it. That was what the whole warning was about. And I've been thinking about that, uh, that, that idea of the torment nexus, this thing that 
the common sense would say, and there have been plenty of warnings along the way saying, don't create it, and yet Silicon Valley turns around and uses that as an instruction manual, as a business model, and then proudly announces, they're always proud, why are they always proud? Proud to announce the launch of their very own Torment Nexus. And the reason that keeps coming up in, in mind, and I wanted to share it with you, is because that pattern is something that I experience, uh, I would say, at least on a weekly basis. I can't say it on a daily basis, but certainly on a weekly basis, I either talk to someone or I read something or I come across a story or somehow I am made aware of a torment nexus that is being built and I think, I covered that on the show. I mean, not, not a credit to me, rather my guest who is an expert wrote a book or an article or made a movie and tried to warn all of us against this torment nexus, this exact thing, and here it is being built. And it's, um, again, like I said, it's, it's a macabre sort of, I wouldn't call it delight, but interest that I take in these stories because after all, there's, there's not a whole lot I can do to change these launches, especially once they're proudly announced. They're the, the horse has left the barn, but the least we can do is raise some awareness and spread the word that this stuff is actually happening. And so let's start with someone who is not a guest, but what I'd like to do is play you a clip from a movie, <laughs> and we are gonna get to some tectonic guest clips in a bit, but I wanted to start with something that's not a guest. Let's just choose the easiest possible example, and, um, and, and then I'm going to, uh, we're gonna play a clip from a movie, and then we're gonna talk about the Torment Nexus that has been built uh, as a result, or if not as a result, at least in the wake of this warning, despite the warning. Here it is, and let's see if you can, I'm sure you're gonna be able to identify this right away, but here it is, here's our first clip. In three years, Cyberden will become the largest supplier of military computer systems. All stealth bombers are upgraded with Cyberden computers becoming fully unmanned. Afterwards, they fly with a perfect operational record. The Skynet funding bill is passed. The system goes online on August 4th, 1997. Human decisions are removed from strategic defense. Skynet begins to learn at a geometric rate. It becomes self-aware at 2.14 a.m. Eastern Time, August 29th. In a panic, they try to pull the plug. Skynet fights back. Yes, it launches its missiles against the targets in Russia. Why attack Russia? Aren't they friends now? because Skynet knows that the Russian counterattack will eliminate its enemies over here. Okay, so that obviously is a clip from Terminator 2, and that was Arnold giving, as, as, as the Terminator, giving us the warning, don't create Skynet. I mean, back in, back in those days, the Terminator movie days, I think everyone looked at that and said, well... This is a dystopian fan sci-fi fantasy. It's not like anyone would actually go out and create Skynet. And um, if you just do a simple Wikipedia search, and I, I've seen mentions of this along the way, but uh, if you bring up Skynet, you need to first uh, distinguish exactly which Skynet you mean. And these are real-world platforms. Do you mean the UK military satellite communication system called Skynet? Or do you mean a surveillance program, not making this up, by the U.S. National Security Agency, our very own NSA, called Skynet? Or do you mean the Chinese government's video mass surveillance system called, you guessed it, Skynet. So whether you're talking about the British surveillance system, the American surveillance system, or the Chinese surveillance system, take your pick. We have built at least three surveillance systems powered by artificial intelligence called Skynet. And I guess in each of the three cases, someone there in the upper echelons of the surveillance state government 
body who said, we need a new name for our massive uh, skyborne digital surveillance system that's going to be spying on our own citizens. You know what would be hilarious is if we named it Skynet. Remember the Terminator movies? Yeah, everyone sat around the, the conference table. Yeah, Skynet. And now we have at least three of them. Okay, so the Terminator movies were basically telling us don't build the Torment Nexus. And now we have at least three Torment Nexi called Skynet in the skies, surveilling us in various parts of the world right now. So there's, a, there's number one. For, for example number two, let me go to a tectonic guest. This is going to be from... We're going we're gonna to actually play two clips from past guests. But I want to set it up because last week, if you listened last week, uh, I had author and artist James Bridal on. And uh, he has, he's got a new book out. They, excuse me. They have a new book out called Ways of Being and uh, talking about plants, animals, machines, and the search for planetary intelligence. And it's a wide-ranging book. Go back and listen to the interview. I really enjoyed speaking with James and learning. I enjoyed reading the book. And, and it's, it's, it's worth paying attention to and, and, and worth reading if you're interested in the search for uh, various types of intelligence. One of the things at the end of the interview that we talked about was the new campaign in some quarters for robot personhood or AI personhood. The idea that as AI becomes more advanced, it will inevitably achieve some sort of sentience, consciousness, or if not, and James made this distinction, maybe it's not conscious, but maybe it's showing signs of intelligence uh, to a degree that it does merit some kind of legal personhood, much like we are uh, beginning to grant personhood to animals and rivers and things like that. Go back and listen to the interview. But I want to zoom in on this, this idea of robot personhood because as I was reading that part of James's book and we talked about it in the interview, uh, and, and as I said, I, I thought James's reply was, was very thoughtful, and I think it's, it's not simply, you know, a right or wrong uh, issue. It's, it's worth thinking about, but it did remind me of a couple of, uh, a couple, well, well one, actually, there's going to be one clip that I'm going to play. Not, not two, sorry. It's going to be one clip that I play from a 2021 interview with an author named Frank Pasquale. Frank actually has been on the show twice, but I'm only going to play a clip from his most recent appearance on the May 3rd, 2021 show uh, while we were discussing his book called New Laws of Robotics. And this, you'll hear, we're talking about, this is back in May of 2021, we're talking about the possibility of robot personhood. And let's hear what, uh, what I asked Frank and what, how Frank Pasquale answered back on uh, May 3rd, 2021 on Tectonic. Okay, we are going to hear that momentarily. Here it is, one more time, the clip from Frank Pasquale. You do a good job, Frank, of pointing to the future to say where this is headed <laughs> is at some point people are going to be arguing for rights for robots. That is to say, for legal personhood. You're serious about this, right, Frank? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there, there are people out there making this type of argument. You know, there are uh, concerns. I mean, what's what's fascinating to me is that I think the robot rights issue is a fascinating one because there is this really interesting interplay of characters and actors and activists in it. So they're sort of like all over the map sometimes when you sort of are dealing with the overarching community. And then there are people that just are like uh, just angry about it and, you know, will call you a human supremacist, you know, that like you're like a white supremacist. <laughs> well, literally, I've been called this. I've been called a human supremacist for saying that a robot should not have rights. And like if I pull the battery out of a police robot that is attacking me, I shouldn't be in trouble for animal cruelty. 
right? And so, you know, that that's, but, you know, if you take it fully in, in the direction of, of where the rights, the, the the discourse is going. Oh, I love it. They, they, they said, uh, Frank, didn't you watch 2001? The, the robot was saying, please don't, Dave, please don't. You know, Hal was hurt. Hal was hurt, exactly. You know, and, and that's where, I mean, I think it's just strange, you know, and, and, I, and I think also like imagine someone that has a robot that looks like a cat and then the, the, it falls off the ledge and it starts crying, you know, and then they say, well, look, it's feeling pain. It's like, no, it's not feeling pain. It could, it's fooling you into thinking that it's an entity capable of feeling pain. But in fact, it could have been programmed not to do that. It could just say, please fix my foot or something, you know? So, <laughs> so to me, it's just like, we have to take on this realistic view before you have this sort of like rhetoric of people saying, well, uh, because I value it as such, you have to value it as such. And that's really the ultimatum they're giving to many of us right now. Think about like Amazon delivery robots, right? I mean, Amazon is under a lot of heat now for essentially dispatching people to work eight, 10, 12 hours a day and not, you know, without a bathroom and then yelling at them when they come back, you know, with uh, the obvious sequelae of that. So they, they're investing in robotics. And the next step is to try to tell people, well, the Amazon sidewalk delivery robot, get out of its way when it comes your way, you know, and move quick. You can't impede it. You can't question it. You can't say, well, wait a second. I don't know. Is this really an Amazon robot or is this something that's like more menacing? You've got to treat it with respect. You've got to answer its questions the way you would answer a human being's questions, et cetera. And this is also born fruit. And I think at least one U.S. municipality has written laws saying, look, robots on sidewalks, they have the right of way like pedestrians do. Okay, that again was Frank Pasquale speaking to me on Tectonic back in May of 2021 about his book, New Laws of Robotics. By the way, there is a link to that show uh, on the playlist at WFMU.org. You can, you can go back and listen to the whole interview if you'd like. Uh, it, it, was, it was worth listening to. But the reason I pointed out that piece is because I have, since, since we had that conversation, uh, I have never forgotten what Frank said, that he has been called a, quote, human supremacist because he has resisted the idea of giving robots legal personhood or legal rights uh, the way other citizens, and again, to James Bridle's point, um, some other sentient beings are beginning to get. And that is... Uh, that is what is coming at us if we don't make some sort of a change. And an early example, leading indicator of this is exactly the example that Frank gave, which is that Amazon has uh, sidewalk robots that are beginning to um, use the, 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 the public space of the sidewalk for their own transportation of goods, the, the so-called last mile. And Amazon is beginning to lean into personhood as a reason why people should get out of the way for the robots. They are beginning to lay the groundwork, in other words, of saying, our, our poor robots, why won't you have sympathy for our robots? They are effectively people too. Why don't you get out of the way and don't mistreat them or you could be prosecuted? Uh, the robots have rights too. And what Amazon really means is, we have a delivery mechanism for our goods that are using the, uh, the public space of the sidewalk and we want to monetize that fully. Uh, and we don't want any citizens getting in the way. In, in fact, it would be wonderful if all of you would just stay home and just consume all of your stuff through the Amazon app and other apps on your smartphone and never leave home and just look at a screen all the time and let the, side, let the sidewalk be taken over by these big tech owned robots with legal personhood. That is where we're headed. And what Frank Pasquale told us back in 2021 is be careful about the torment nexus that's being created. And here we see, even, even last week in my conversation with, with James Bridal, that there are there is a movement afoot on the part, I think mostly on the part of the trillion dollar toxic corporations to bring this to fruition. So that's example number two, robot personhood is on the way and how it might combine with Skynet is up to you. Tell me on the, tell me on the playlist how 
the the coming uh, sentience of, of Skynet is going to blend with the legal personhood of the Amazon delivery robots. Let's move on to, to uh, example number three. This one has to do with self-driving cars. And I've had uh, at least, uh, gosh, at least two of the uh, past tectonic shows have at least touched on self-driving cars, maybe three, because Paris Marx and I spoke about self-driving cars in, in about his recent book, Road to Nowhere, but I'm not going to be including clips from that recent show. I have, I have clips from a 2018 show and a 2019 show that has to do with self-driving cars. And um, why don't we start with 2018, this is May 28, 2018, Meredith Broussard had written a book called Artificial Unintelligence, which I liked a lot. And uh, Meredith and I talked about the so-called trolley problem that is already, even as of four years ago, was already being encoded in some cars. And you'll hear what the trolley problem is. But it's, it's the idea that cars may, in self-driving mode, may make split-second decisions in code about who lives and who dies on city streets and sidewalks. Let's listen to how Meredith Broussard put it. The self-driving car, if there's a sparkly unicorn sticker on the stop sign, the self-driving car is not going to recognize it. It's going to go straight through the intersection and it's going to cause an accident. That doesn't seem safe to me. You bring up the inevitable philosophical thought experiment called the trolley problem. Can you describe the trolley problem? Yeah, the trolley problem is a classic problem in computer ethics. It's the problem that people uh, that people most often think about when they think about self-driving cars. So the idea is you're driving a runaway trolley. Do you go on track A and hit one person, or do you go on track B and hit multiple people? You're given a scenario where it's like, do you choose the bad or the worse? Right. And so one of the things that I write about in the book is I write about the idea of the trolley problem in the context of the self-driving car. And I imagined myself as a driver of a self-driving car, and the self-driving car is barreling toward a group of schoolchildren standing at the bus stop. So the car can either hit the tree and kill me, the driver, or the car can hit this group of schoolchildren. Now, I would prefer to sacrifice myself and hit the tree because young lives are precious. You know, I would rather save the small children. But the self-driving car needs to be programmed ahead of time to make this decision. So car makers are actually independently making choices about this. So like a Mercedes, for example, is programmed to save the driver. Now, I just want to, I read that in the book and when I was telling a friend of mine about the book I was reading, this is just yesterday, I used that example as, as one of the things that I'd come across in the book. You know, self-driving cars are a big deal. But did you know that Mercedes has already programmed their answer to the trolley problem? And here it is. Who did the code review on that Mercedes self-driving code that they discovered that the car would barrel into the kids rather than the tree? So that I got from an interview in Car and Driver magazine. So most car companies have actually been very open about uh, how they've grappled with the trolley problem, which is great because we we need more conversations around ethics in computer science and ethics around choices that autonomous vehicles are making. But we need to have these conversations and we need to have regulation and laws because that's how we collectively decide things in a democracy. So a democracy is not about a couple of engineers at a wealthy corporation making decisions on behalf of all of society. Okay, that again was Meredith Broussard uh, in a conversation about her book, Artificial Unintelligence, from the May 28, 2018 tectonic. So over four years ago, we were talking about self-driving cars and the possibility that it was already at that time being encoded in Mercedes vehicles. I'm sure by now it's been encoded in others in which a car given various input data coming into its sensors could make a split second decision 
um, without the consent of the driver to veer one way or another to have its own solution to the trolley problem. And Meredith, of course, um, trying to explain why this is important, uses an especially dramatic example of whether, uh, of the, the case of, of school children on the side of the road, maybe on the sidewalk, and the car possibly in an act of self-preservation deciding to run into children. And it was, it was weird because a year later, I had a conversation on Tectonic with Sam West and Matt Kleinman about a podcast, a comedy podcast that they put together called Smarter, which was a satire of Silicon Valley and the tech bro mindset that fits exactly with uh, the so-called torment nexus that Meredith Broussard was warning us about. Let's not have a few uh, prominent people at very wealthy Silicon Valley companies making decisions that affect the rest of us. Uh, and, and certainly not decisions that could affect the lives of kids uh, on a sidewalk with self-driving cars uh, driving around. And about a year later, this is from December 16, 2019, I had Sam West and Matt Kleinman on, and we talked about a particular uh, episode of their satire podcast called Smarter, which featured self-driving cars and sadly a very familiar scenario. Here is, um, I'm speaking with Sam West in this part of the conversation. One of my favorite episodes was the one about DriveMind, which it was a self-driving car startup. Right. It covered a lot of the ridiculous thinking around self-driving cars and algorithms the self-driving car is not ready, and the engineers are telling the startup founder not to take it for a test drive. But of course, since billionaire Noah Lucas is there, the founder gets in the car with Noah Lucas, and inevitably something goes wrong. The car runs off the road and actually strikes a child who's, <laughs> who's standing on the sidewalk. The child is injured, and they try to figure out later why the car of its own accord, ran off the road and struck the child. Turns out the car had used all of the surveillance data that the cloud had gotten on this child and determined that the child was <laughs> over 80% evil on some sort of an evil scale. And so Noah Lucas concludes that the car had morality built in. And in fact, by trying to take out that kid, this car might have done the most moral act in all of human history. Right, exactly. Because <laughs> the kid could have gone on to, you know, become a Hitler or, you know, like lead a genocide of some kind. Um, so better to take him out. And it's such a ridiculous notion, except that you see that the pieces are in place for that sort of, whether you're talking about predictive policing or the social credit system that's being built in China that American big tech companies would certainly like to install here in the U.S., and the false promises of self-driving cars. It's hilarious, but it's also disturbing because you really are getting at relevant issues that people should be paying attention to. Right. The th I think the thing that scares me the most about self-driving cars is the idea of a like black box algorithm where you really can't figure out why a computer is behaving the way it is. It's just the result of a lot of data that's been collected and been processed through the software that's been written. And the people that work there may not be, even be able to tell you why a decision was made. And, you know, by the time the kid has been hit by the car, it's obviously already too late. That feels like a kind of frightening feature that we're already kind of halfway. You know, we're almost past the point of no return with that stuff anyway. Okay. Again, that was Sam West speaking to me back in December of 2019 we were having a conversation about his and Matt Kleiman's podcast called Smarter, which is still around. I'd still recommend it. It's st still uh, relevant, uh, the satire that, that they presented in that podcast. But here in this clip, Sam West was talking about how, as he said, it seems like we're over halfway to this, this possible dystopian scenario where cars could be making opaque calculations about the people and or the kids uh, that, that it can sense nearby on the street or on the sidewalk and can make its own uh, unilateral decisions about where to drive as a result. 
it, much like the same example that Meredith Broussard had brought up about the trolley problem in a Mercedes and what it might do if it saw a tree versus a, a group of school children. Well, between Meredith Broussard and Sam West, uh, separated by a little over a year, those two episodes, I think you can see that uh, I was happy to amplify their voices in saying, say it with me, friends, don't create the torment nexus. <laughs> don't do it. And, um, and that came to mind just a few days ago. Actually, station manager Ken Friedman shared with me a Guardian article. So thank you, Ken, for sending that over. And the headline, this is from August 9 in The Guardian. So from within the last week, The Guardian writes, Tesla's self-driving technology fails to detect children in the road, group claims. And the article goes on to, to state, a safe technology campaign group opposed to Tesla's self-driving technology has claimed to have run tests that show that the software represents a potentially lethal threat to child pedestrians in the latest in a series of claims and investigations. And it's called the Dawn Project, D-A-W-N. The Dawn Project says its test track results revealed that the latest version of Tesla's full self-driving, uh, otherwise known as FSD, beta software, failed to detect a stationary child-sized mannequin at an average speed of 25 miles an hour. And from the Dawn Project, there's someone named Dan O'Dowd. O'Dowd described the test results, which have been published on the Dawn Project's website, as, quote, deeply dis disturbing, and that Tesla's software represented, quote, a lethal threat to all Americans. He added, quote, over 100,000 Tesla drivers are already using the car's full self-driving mode on public roads, putting children at great risk in communities across the country, unquote. And so what we have learned here, and this is not news, the, the so-called full self-driving mode, FSD, uh, has been in the news quite a bit, but here we have test results, and if you click the link, you can you can find your way to a little video clip that shows a Tesla, if it's if it's to be believed, and it seems legitimate legitimate to me, the uh, Tesla vehicle is in self-driving mode. It's going about 25 miles an hour. There is a child-sized and shaped mannequin in the middle of the road, and the Tesla slams into the mannequin. And so what we have found is that Elon Musk's brilliant company has built, at long last, has built the Torment Nexus, the very thing that Meredith Broussard and Sam West and Matt Kleinman and I and many others were trying to warn everyone against. Elon Musk has launched, he's proud to announce, he's always proud to announce the latest version of full self-driving mode. And uh, when Inevitably, the journalists and occasionally a regulator will come over and say, hey, you call that full self-driving mode when drivers uh, turn on FSD and give control completely over to the car. We're seeing a lot of accidents. Musk says, well, it's called full self-driving mode, but I, I, I wouldn't say that it, it implies that that the car is going to do everything. I mean, the, the, it's really up to the drivers to be safe. That's not an, that's not a direct quote, but the the general uh, the general kind of response that Musk has has brought back is that maybe full self driving mode uh, doesn't mean it's not meant to mean exactly what you think. It's it doesn't mean this like fully self driving. How would you get that idea? Anyway, so this news broke. There was this video that went viral of this Tesla slamming into this child-sized mannequin, exactly the scenario that Meredith Broussard and Sam West were talking about. And then after, <laughs> anytime there's bad publicity for Tesla, the Tesla fanboys come out of the woodwork and they'll, they'll say anything. They'll do anything. They really will do anything to defend the honor of their leader the great Elon Musk, who someday has promised to take them all on his spaceship to Mars. He promised, so he's definitely gonna do it. And uh, there was an article on August 10, just a few days ago on futurism. And let me just read you this quote. 
because you thought the Torment Nexus has been launched. Not quite. We have to put the final touch on the Torment Nexus. Here it is. Quote, prominent Tesla fanboy and investor account, Whole Mars Catalog, asked its 129,000 followers, I guess on social media, if there was, quote, anyone in the Bay Area with a child who can run in front of my car on full self-driving beta to make a point, unquote, clarifying that this was a, quote, serious request. <sighs> yes, so here we have Futurism reporting that when the bad news broke, th that as we've, anyone who's been following the news for a while already knew that full self-driving mode is a potentially lethal threat to anyone on the roads or around the roads as Tesla uh, vehicles are running around, that, that, that children in particular are at risk. And that th when this news broke, the Tesla fanboy account whole Mars catalog. I'm not even going to get into what I think of that name, a takeoff of Stuart Brand's whole earth catalog. Whole Mars catalog said, is there anyone in the Bay Area with a child who can run in front of my car on full self-driving beta to make a point? Presumably looking for another Tesla fanboy who is, who is ready to uh, risk sacrificing their child for the, for the betterment of Elon Musk's PR and futurism to put the final, final finishing touch on this whole torment nexus. Futurism adds one more sentence to make matters worse. Whole Mars claims that someone volunteered their child for the experiment. That's the world we live in friends. Some of us are warning the world against building the Torment Nexus. A pretty common sense idea, I'd say. Don't build the Torment Nexus. And then we have the world's richest man, the richest person in history, proudly announces the latest beta version of the Torment Nexus, TM. And it's defended by an army of social media fanboys who will defend to the last inch the idea that Elon Musk is going to save them. Whole Mars catalog. I know what planet this guy, if he's a guy, is intending to go to. Can anyone volunteer their child for a potentially lethal sacrifice in order that we can make a point and defend our Lord Elon Musk's honor? And someone stepped forward with a child. There, the Torment Nexus has been launched, and it is in full operation, friends. Be careful on those roads, is all I can say. Let's go to the next example. We only got 15 minutes left. I'm not even going to get to all the examples I had queued up. I had so many uh, Torment Nexus examples, but let's keep moving. Uh, I want to play a clip from... Joe Turo, who wrote a book, he's, he's a UPenn at the Annenberg Center professor. He wrote a great book called The Voice Catchers I Liked a Lot, which is about voice surveillance from Alexa devices, other home surveillance devices. Uh, I'm, these days we could add Amazon Ring to the list um, th that is conducting almost certainly voice surveillance, your smartphone. Anyway. We didn't just talk about voice surveillance. Really, Joe was talking about voice surveillance as one example of what's called biometric surveillance. This is where the trillion dollar toxic companies, these monopolies who are not operating in your best interest are trying to get any data about your body. Anything uh, that, that comes from, from your voice, your fingerprints, the way you walk, uh, your height, your weight, anything that has to do with, with you physically can be uh, brought in as biometric surveillance. And there was one specific type that Joe Turo asked as a rhetorical question. We couldn't be going here, could we? This is near the end, the very end of my interview from September 27, 2021 with Joe Turo on Tectonic. Let's hear the little clip first. So I don't really believe that there is a way to do true consent when it comes to voice and biometrics. The consequence of that, I argue, is that we have to make it illegal in marketing, that it's simply straightforward. We, they, this is a red line. 
if our bodies are going to be used for marketing purposes, where do we go from here? It's not just voice. It's, as you point out, gait, the way you walk. But think about this. If I gave you or friends of yours who are maybe more monetarily inclined, if I gave you $20 a month for you to send me a urine sample, okay, and I could use that urine sample to analyze the food that you eat and to send you discounts and other activities based upon that, would you do it? Some people would, okay? Or if we go from, from urine to some other aspect of things, blood samples, what, where does it stop? When do we stay interrogating the human body is a problem. Where does it stop, Joe Turo asks. Could it possibly go all the way to blood samples, urine samples? What, what, is, it, what is it gonna take for people to stand up? Well, it's funny that he should ask that. And it's funny that we should be talking about that because I have been following a story for a couple of months now. I've seen it here and there in some local publications. And then finally, it has popped in a national publication in Wired Magazine just today, August 15. Now, let me back up a little bit um, because... The, the story that I was following, which didn't make sense to me initially, is something about a, a policy in, in the state of New Jersey. And I don't know how long this has been instated, but, but for a while now, New Jersey has a policy that when a baby is born inside the state, the state mandates that a blood sample be taken from the newborn. And when asked why does the state of New Jersey need to take a blood sample, the state said effectively, well, we, we want to screen for diseases. First, it's going to help that particular family because they'll see if the newborn has a particular disease. We're going to provide that, that, uh, that data back to them. And second, we, we do population-wide tracking don't worry, it's all anonymous. We want to see if there are certain kinds of disease vectors that are popping up in different communities, and that helps in our, our public health efforts. Great, people said, that's fine. Who, 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 who wants populations to, to suffer disease? Of course, that's a, that's a great use of, of your, uh, we wouldn't call it surveillance, but you know, taking some blood samples. But then some journalists dug in a little bit, and they found that the blood samples were not simply being taken and used for, uh, for, for finding disease vectors, monitoring the, for public health. The blood samples were being stored. Now, let me ask you, friends, how long do you think a newborn baby's blood sample should be kept on file to do, you know, the little screening, make sure they don't have whatever the disease is and see if the community has a certain... How long would you... Uh, by state mandate, how long would you keep the newborn baby's blood sample around? Some of you might say, well, a month should do it, maybe six months. You know, in, in, the, in the nth case, maybe they need to keep it for, for a whole year. I don't know, not to be creepy, but maybe they, they have a backlog and they need a whole year to get through it. Here's the punchline, friends, which really confused me, but this is true. New Jersey State keeps newborn blood samples on file, physically on file, for 23 years. Now you tell me, friends, why would a state want to keep blood samples around for 23 years? That's what confused me. Why would the state, what could they possibly need to know in 20 years about the disease vectors or the health of that? That kid's going to be 23 years old at that point. What do they need to know if they had a disease when they were born? Why don't you check them now, see, see how they're, they're feeling? It didn't make sense, but I knew there was something more to it, and that led to this Wired magazine finally popping, and it comes from the state of New Jersey. And here is the headline, and this is going to give it away. And so let me just remind you that Joe Turo said, whatever you do, as you're doing the voice surveillance and the biometric surveillance, whatever you do, say it with me, friends, don't build the torment nexus of doing blood sample 
genetic surveillance. Here's the Wired article from today, August 15. Quote, police used a baby's DNA to investigate its father for a crime. Quote, according to the New Jersey lawsuit, police had reopened an investigation into a cold case and had used genetics to place the suspect within a single family. But police, here's the, here's the kicker, friends, police did not yet have probable cause to attain, ob obtain search warrants for DNA swabs from anyone in the family. Instead, they asked the state's newborn screening lab for a blood sample of one of the children. So it used to be when we had a little more sanity in our uh, legal processes around surveillance, or especially around biometric, that if the police wanted DNA from a suspect, they would have to at least get a search warrant. You know, it used to be considered kind of private matter to share your DNA with, with the, the, the state, police or any other state body. Uh, and in fact, I remember a few years ago, the NYPD got in a little bit of hot water. They, they had some bad PR when they were with a, a minor. It was a 12 or 13-year-old boy. I can't remember his age. Maybe he, he was 14 or something. And they said, hey, would you like, and he wasn't a suspect, as I remember. He, they, the police just wanted to, you know, talk with him about things he may have seen. He was, a, was just someone they were talking to. And they, they said, hey, would you like us to buy you a soda? And the boy, trusting the police, said, yes, I would love a soda. Thank you. And they gave him a soda. And when he was done drinking the soda, and they made sure to put a straw. Here, we got you a straw for your soda. So you don't have to drink right out of the can. Oh, thank you, sir. And so when they were done, they disposed of the can, but they held on to the straw. You can only guess why. Yep. They got the boy's DNA off of the straw. That's why they offered him the soda with a straw, and here we have, and they got in a little hot water, but here we have crime investigators in the state of New Jersey saying, hey, if we don't have a search warrant, we don't have probable cause, no problem. Let's just go to the newborn blood DNA database here in the state of New Jersey. Hey, heck, we got 23 years to get through it. Let's just call them up. Oh, you want the blood sample? Yeah, here it is. And they were able to get the DNA, and you know, if you get one of those cheek swabs from, from 23andMe or, or Ancestry.com or something like that, they, you better read the terms and conditions because some of those services share the DNA uh, data with police. And who knows who else? And that's if you, if you believe the terms and conditions, the ones who claim they won't do that. If you send back a cheek swab, your DNA is going into who knows how many databases out there. And good luck changing your DNA if that gets out wider than you want it. But it's not just you. If any of your near relations gets a cheek swab, let's say you're privacy-minded, but your first cousin goes and, and, and sends in a cheek swab to 23andMe, your DNA is basically in that database being shared with who knows whom. Because within a family, and this is, the, this is the, the reason the Wired article was talking about getting the, the, the suspect's child's DNA, if you're within the family, the DNA is very similar and they can get what they need. So um, tell your entire family not to send in the cheek swab, but if they already have, I don't know what to tell you. Because notwithstanding Joe Turo's warning about biometrics, we have gone and built the torment nexus here in the state of New Jersey. If you have a newborn, that newborn's DNA by state policy is going to be surveilled and analyzed and stored and shared with who knows whom for up to 23 years. Uh, by the way, there was another fun, fun part of that uh, conversation with Joe Turo when he talks about normalization and habituation to these surveillance technologies. And I don't have time to get into this, but the idea of normalizing the torment nexus, I'll just leave you with this. The idea of normalizing the torment nexus is something that is another uh, pattern that I see almost on a, a weekly basis where I'm saying, you know what? 
That is what was, was warned about, and yet the big tech companies are spending a lot to convince us that this is fine, this is inevitable, you should just get on board. In fact, it's kind of fun. And, and sure enough, Amazon, knowing that people are beginning, they're just beginning to wake up to the surveillance possibilities of Amazon Ring. Amazon gets all of the data from every Ring camera, video and audio. They take all of it. They take all of it back to Amazon HQ for processing. Why no one ever talks about this, I don't know. What does get some headlines is that Amazon has partnerships with over a thousand law enforcement agencies and they have begun to share surveillance footage from people's front doors without the owner's knowledge or consent. It's beginning to happen. And so Amazon now has to move into the phase of normalizing and habituating people to the idea of surveillance. And what do we find in Engadget on August 12, just three days ago? Ring Nation, this the idea, the, the, the title, Ring Nation, is a new streaming TV show that's in the works. Ring Nation is what happens when America's funniest home videos meets Black Mirror. Yep, Amazon is gonna be making a TV show for a streaming service, uh, probably Amazon's own streaming service, that is made up of Ring videos to, to show us that it's so fun being surveilled by Amazon. Don't worry, it's totally normal. That's all the time I've got. I had, I had, oh gosh, I had more clips for you, but that pretty much gives you the idea. We have been saying for years, don't build the Torment Nexus, and example after example after example, the trillion dollar companies are proud to announce the latest version of the Torment Nexus, and they are going to try to normalize it for us to make it fun, you know? You know, the Torment Nexus can be fun while we are all exploited. You have been listening, friends, to the greatest radio station of the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, you know what to do. Avoid Amazon and Apple. Forget Facebook. And whatever you do, get off Google. And, you know, for the outro, I've got about 30 seconds, but I want to play one more warning of someone saying, I tried to warn you, but they went and built the Torment Nexus. It's from another movie you'll probably be able to get this right away but it's apropos and please stay tuned for ebba with spin the globe have a great week everybody they're making our food out of people next thing they'll be breeding us like cattle for food you gotta tell them you gotta tell them promise tiger i promise i'll tell the exchange you tell everybody listen to me hatcher you gotta tell them Silent Breed is people! We gotta stop them somehow!
Saling be-